Hello, hello, and welcome all y'all. Uh, it's your boy, Kalen Moorhead. Yo, this is Cameron Luck. I'm, we're back again. Hey, just here to talk to you some more about uh, the good old world of UX design. Yep, should be a cool one today. What do we got on coming up today, Kalen? Uh, well, looks like today's uh, topic is going to be around what UX looks like outside of a screen. All right, sounds good. Should be a pretty interesting one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's an interesting concept, right? The idea that like what we're working on, um, uh, get, you know, given that we're in technology in a technology space, there's always this assumption that user experience is like solely just like what you do on like your phone or on your computer right and that's not really the case i guess that's the whole like ui is ux misconception you know like not and right. to be fair like not all ui is visual so i think that's kind of the issue there too is like we've been so far into this visual world that we kind of forget that ux isn't even about visuals it's an expression that's exactly. one version of it. i mean i think in part you know is that conflation that i think we spoke on a little bit before about how it's like visual design gets so wrapped up in ux design and sort yeah. of like this expectation that everything that we do as user experience designers is tied to just like just like the touch points in the interaction um, that you have like on a screen when it's really a much more systemic thing Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I feel like in this conversation, we'll probably touch on the concept of like accessibility and things like that, um, even when you are designing yeah. for screens, right? Yeah. Um, so let's we'll get into it a little bit uh, more. But, you know, I think something that kind of comes to mind for me uh, to think about this question is. I think one of like the best user experience things that I personally like ever went through and just experienced myself was um, a lot of what Donald Glover did for the Because the Album, Because the Internet album. Yeah, I go back to that album a lot and just not even so much just because of the music, but uh, which I did love. I'm a huge Childish Gambito fan, but like, you know, there ain't nothing new there, but it's like everything else that was tied up in it, right? Where it was like beforehand, like several months before he like releases this like short film, like 30 minutes long, and it kind of just doesn't have this actual point to it. It's just like really setting a mood or a theme sort of. And then there's like all these like bits of things that get released in the like months leading up to it. Um, there's like these websites that, uh, you know, during the tour after the album had come out, that was like every week would be like a different website. And it was this whole weird experience with like different pictures and stuff that you could, uh, you know, read, look at and mm -hmm. just all these like sort of like a weird visual scrapbook sort of website thing. Um, and like before that, you know, before the album came out, he had that art installation that was supposed to be like uh, the character's house uh, from the album and like all this other stuff. And I can get into more of it, but it's just... I, I really appreciated it because that was, you know, in the one time in my life where I had an ability to like really actually kind of go around and see those different things that he was doing because you have to be doing a lot of them near me. Mm -hmm. Like the thing with with uh, that album for me was like being I was able to go and see all the different installations. He did stuff like he had the concerts and I went to several of those. He had um, art installations that like I saw pictures from and like read up, um, you know, people dissecting like what it was and what was happening in them. And I went to South by Southwest that year and he, he was there and he had this like pop up shop that was also part of 
like the story from the album and all that together really does make an experience that is the like best ux thing i have ever seen because it's totally like multimodal different mediums some of it's interactive some of it is you know passive um it's real life it's artificial or it's real life it's digital it's you know visual mediums and just art and stuff like that and it's like performance art and traditional art it's a whole slew of different things and that to me was just one of the most mind-blowing experiences uh i've ever seen yeah, that was dope. I remember you talking about that when you went and saw the show and being like, oh, the show was different yeah. and it had all this stuff. And yeah, you had to download an app to go to the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's a different game. <laughs> I, we, we were doing live voting uh, in the middle of like one of the songs, like in between sets or something. This man's and Twitch like, streaming at his own concert. <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he was doing a literal live poll I'm like yo how lit is this basically and people are like really lit <laughs> <laughs> it is two two emoji flames yo it's like two out of two out of the one pretty much <laughs> let me tell you that that jump was lit that jump was lit that's funny i think to me the first thing that came to my head when you started talking about this and i'm sure i'm gonna do this a thousand times across this podcast but like what yeah. is the definition of ux right and I'm right. sure there will be several definitions and I guarantee you I'll give you a different <laughs> one next week. But the first definition that I have. Say for it with your chest. You said what? Say it with your chest. <laughs> Say it with your chest. That's pretty much what the Donald Glover experience was. No, but like yeah. anytime you hear everybody say this, but like whenever you try to define UX people or people will normally say, hey, UX is how it looks and feels. And in reality, like the visuals are how it looks and UX is kind of how it feels. And mm -hmm. what you're talking about is like, that experience gave you a certain emotion, a feeling, and almost like creates a destination in your head. And you're mm -hmm. like, oh, I kind of feel like I'm in this mm -hmm. and part of this, even though like there's no tangible element to it, you know, like, right. And that's kind of what UX is. And I think like a lot of the time um, we in the industry, you'll hear so many terms get thrown around. You hear like, oh, UX, UI, mm -hmm. visual design. You'll start hearing stuff like CX, customer experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and people have started to talk about yeah, like- we started moving about, moving into product design too. Yeah, product design. But like CX is the one that's interesting uh, to talk yeah. about from my perspective, because like, that's literally what UX is. Like UX goes beyond the screen. Even if right. you're designing an app or a website, like it goes right. beyond the screen into the emotions and the day-to-day -day, like- Of your customer. Of your customer, yeah. And it's like when you're designing something, you're supposed to think about how it seeps into all those elements. And like, yeah. that's what people have tried to hijack and say like, oh, that's what CX is. I'm like, no, that's literally what UX always was. And we right. tried to assign it to the screen. Um, and it's really the entire, uh, the entirety of the breadth of all touch points between you mm -hmm. and a brand or an experience or anything like that. That's what you were experiencing mm. with that Donald Glover scenario. Yeah. It was like, you still can tell about an experience that that was nearly like five to 10 years ago at this that, point. That was a good eight, six, eight years ago. Something that like was that. a while yeah. ago. Yeah. Like yeah. that was a while ago. And I'm like, you're still old. able to talk about it. Like it's today. <laughs> exactly. Cause you know, it's that kind of stuff. Cause that's what UX is really about. It's about having impact. And it's about like, and sometimes the thing is, is like sometimes you make impact and sometimes the impact that you make is not even felt. And right. that's really like what's so amazing about it. And that's like what's so important about it, too. Um, you know, for an example, in terms of 
I had an experience recently where I was trying to return a product, so I had to go to this like st- go back to this uh, store, and you know, with all the social distancing and stuff, they have all these kiosks, and so they're like, if you have a return, you know, press here um, <laughs> to like start your return process. I love, and, how, I love how you've boiled the return process down to literally like a a phone call, <laughs> like hey, press one to be directed to the guy in the back. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, it it. it, it I wish it was that simple, camera because <laughs> I'll tell you, I had to go on. So when I was using their, this kiosk, I had to go. What was it? I had clicked in it. I clicked into it. You know, it's like, do you have a new return? Continue return. It's like, well, continue return. I try. I click in. Like, you have to log into your account. And I'm like, what the hell? I'm in a kiosk. Like, in this the was middle, in store. Like, this is in a store. <laughs> I am in a kiosk. I like. There's you know not really people around me right now but it's still just like i don't want to log into my account i don't even if i have my phone number or my email address i do like all kinds of security junk so i don't actually remember my passwords i use a password manager (laughs) like so i'm like well let me go back and try like a new one and see if it'll be quicker that way no you still have to log into your account (laughs) all right so i go back and like continue the continue the return process so i put in my phone number i had to pull out my phone i make it worse i had to log into my password manager before i could even do anything so then i log into that i get in there i'm like show me my uh password for this account pulls it up it's all kinds of complicated mess and so i gotta sit there and make sure i get all these capital and lowercase letters right special characters and whatever whatever the hell <laughs> and so after I like put it in, there's like, oh, we need to put it. We need a security question in here. Like, there's a capture that shows up after I hit the sign in button, and it's like, you know, a little warning message. So I put that in, and then that didn't go right. So I tried to like reload the captcha, and I couldn't read because I couldn't read it. Actually, it was too hard for me the first time I looked at it, and it was like, basically, it took me like three or four times of trying to. I had to re-enter my password like three or four times, and it's like some string of random characters. And it's just like, this could all be resolved if you just showed something like on the screen, like a QR code, and I just scanned it with my phone and clicked it. Um, it's that simple. And yet, for a lot of people, you know, for a lot of companies and a lot of experiences, it's like, you don't, if you don't think about it from that perspective of like the person who's going through a long day, they've been doing job, you know, they've been doing their job uh, all day or coming from a bunch of errands. It's always going to be just this it's going to be a problem basically and right, so right. i wish people had more of a consideration of that that makes sense because i'm like the, that entire experience sounds so broken because nobody considered the entire scenario yeah right it's like oh what is this user's journey well you know he can log in no like you're in store that really doesn't make sense yeah especially like password managers are getting bigger and bigger people yeah. save passwords in their browsers even so like there's a number of issues that that creates immediately absolutely that's interesting because like the thing i was thinking of too is is when you're we're talking about like these non-screen experiences there's so many um things that from my perspective like stick with you that aren't the traditional ux um and like when you're explaining like oh these this experience across like what you explained with the donald glover kind of album experience and now you're explaining this return experience like both of those have left you with a a kind of memory right mm-hmm. and so like the thing that i find interesting is like if you really break the term down of like user experience or like experience design 
it's literally what it means like you're designing an experience experience and like if you want to be more cliche about it like everybody's using like stories and moments and stuff in apps like that you could replace experience design with any of those like story designer or sure. moment design like you're you're designing a point in time that yes. somebody's kind of interacting with a thing or a idea and like that's if you abstract it away from the ui and the screen and you really think about designing that moment there's a lot more to it and that's mm-hmm. why things like marketing and storytelling and all these things start coming together and that's why it's so important because what you're even talking mm-hmm. about like now latches in your brain as like oh a negative experience with this brand i'm not i don't want to go back there i don't want to shop right. there what if right. i return this again right so like right. it makes these lasting impacts and i think just that little nugget kind of explains the business value of ux because it, it has lasting impact and if you Absolutely. focus on just that moment that the person's interacting with you you can make it a lasting impact to where the person will come back. Cause like, even if let's say for instance, that experience went wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But somebody mm-hmm. came out and helped you above and beyond that fixed that you would remember that too. And exactly. that'd be part of that brand's experience, you know? So like right. it would be much bigger. So right. that's a, a very interesting, um, like both sides of that coin that you experienced. So that's yeah. cool. Yeah. And I mean, I think I, that's kind of what, that's what a user experience designer is doing, right? Is trying to like, craft and craft this uh this moment story experience what the hell you want to call it and like it you know have something that flows um right. and it's a journey that someone goes through and i feel like people don't often consider the journey of someone going through this and sort of like the different places that people are coming from and right, you know right. i i would love to take this to like some you know even bigger sort of like uh, analogy for like just people in general like don't consider others experiences and <laughs> i won't because i don't need to get philosophical too much but it's like it, it, it's one of those things where it's like that's just such a key component of the job right, is right. you have to Empathy. understand is empathizing with your user and knowing like where they're coming from and what they're doing and like what they're trying to do and why i think that thing that's so key about that too right is like one you need to understand what's going to get the user in and out of this experience but like something mm-hmm. that i see is missed so often in user experience design it's like how do you get the person to come back and then what's the thing that ties the two experiences together because like mm-hmm. certain things you use all the time and it's you don't really have to what i'm talking about is mm-hmm. called the experience loop but you don't have to really close the experience loop if i'm making you an iphone like you have mm-hmm. this on you all the time so there's not a huge right. concern that i have to open and close that experience loop. Like say for instance, I'm an e-commerce site and I want you to replace another order. Mm -hmm. I have to do something experientially between the last time you ordered and now to get you to come back and to Mm -hmm. close that experience gap. Mm -hmm. And you have have to understand the user scenario. And like, here's a funny example with like Amazon, right? Mm. And this is like the negative side of it, but it can be turned to a positive. So for instance, Amazon has this thing called buy it again. Oh, so yeah. like anytime you purchase an item, essentially it goes into buy it again. Literally any item. <laughs> Pretty much any item, right? <laughs> it could be a refrigerator. That junk is going and buy you it again. You need another one of these. It's and been it's, six months. It's so, it's so weird because like <laughs> I, I bought a fridge on, buy it on Amazon one time and it shows up. And I had to get it installed and everything. And then like a week later, yeah. I'm looking at my orders and it's like, you want to buy another fridge? I'm like, for what? Yo. And the funny thing Chill. is like some insider's knowledge here. I actually worked on that, uh, on an experience related to Amazon's buy it again for a little bit yeah. Um, yeah. when I was on a related team. And 
the the reason that stayed because i was like hey this doesn't make any sense we should get rid of stuff like fridges like this is insane <laughs> they're like oh but people yeah. do buy them again and there's like actual data that proves that people buy it again. And I'm like, who is buy- like, how many fridges are in Bezos's house? Like, that's yo, what I'm thinking. Yo, I'm like, Jeff must be out here with just like just every fridge. fridge. But it was insane, and I was like, the data proved that. Uh, but that kind of experience made a lasting impact on me for like an Amazon customer, where I felt like the application was more of a utility than like a smart thing right and it has right as much as that's like on a screen right it made me think differently about amazon's brand because as much as like amazon is an online website there's something in my head and i think in a lot of people's head where that box that gets delivered to you and kind Mm -hmm. of the experience with the delivery driver Mm -hmm. delivering a package is almost like christmas every single time yes right and it's like that is what i associate with amazon a lot of the time is this delivery experience but now that i've like gone through this other experience this really close to delivery experience because i was trying to track an order when this happened and i'm like why am i buying another fridge Um, but like that changed my perception of the brand to be like oh this is a little bit more of a utilitarian tool and like as as far as you don't know the impact of that i don't even know the impact myself like psychologically but i'm like i know i'm more willing to like use other companies uh platforms to buy things i don't know if that was impacted from seeing this awkward experience or not, but like, I'm more willing to buy something off of Sears next time or whatever, you know, but I'm like, it's, it's this really weird thing that can make these impacts. And even, even if they're subtle or like not direct, Mm -hmm. like that's not a direct thing that the application did like saying, Oh, buy this fridge again. Like it just made it very obvious that a bot was doing something. Yes, That's all I'm getting at. So I'm like, okay. And it's one of those times where it's sort of like, when you don't intend to, but you show people what's behind the curtain, sort of. And it's like, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I think that I, I think that's a huge problem where it's like when you're showing when you're showing your <laughs> basically, as they would say. Uh, well, it's funny because you said like you didn't intend to do that, but like most designs should be intentional. So you should have intended mm-hmm. not to do that. Exactly. You know, that's exactly yeah. what I'm trying to say. Because, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you're not considerate of the fact that, uh what those hiccups are going to be and that once you find them that you try to like you know correct them and go back and solve for them uh obviously as quickly as possible but it's really important that you try and make sure that whatever you're doing yeah you're you're not showing kind of how the sausage is made sometimes yeah it can it can be an impact on the brand for sure depending on what it is and sometimes it could even have legal ramifications depending on what that's true industry you're in true 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 and it's like i i think there are times when you need to like um at least show or not show excuse me rather like tell sort of like hey they're not because you have to like build trust too you have to build confidence because no one wants to think that they're like giving their information to some black box and no one you don't know what is going on with it and you know obviously as well you have like privacy notice notifications and stuff like that but even on a more like uh, smaller interaction tip it's like telling customers like hey you know this data that you have that you've entered here not being used to sell to anybody we're not right. doing this with Transparent. it like, you know we're, we're we're moving it here this is what's going to happen this is all that's going to happen and when you like really can sort of buy get buy-in that way from your consumers it, it's always going to help yeah yeah and i think that's that's an interesting point because like even though all that stuff happens like in the experience there's a lasting impact outside of the experience for that so like if you don't explain to your customers like what data is being used for they might have a 
like when they interact with the Alexa later, they might think, oh, this data is going to be, it's going to be recording me right, and this data right. and doing this, that, and the third. So like you have, it's interesting because really what we're talking about is like connected experiences now. Mm-hmm. It's like how all these different things impact your brand and how other experiences are connected. So like that experience loop again yeah. isn't closed Yeah, where it's like, oh yeah, I know we're working on this, this sign-in page or something and like, oh, the data doesn't directly influence Alexa, but like the person is using both devices and they might be like, oh, I don't know how my data at Amazon's being used, so I don't trust it in being the Alexa's other format. Yeah. Right. And it does have, there's that cross-pollination of uh, trust and distrust, I think, because, yeah. you know, it, I think you could see it stem down into like smaller sub-brands and stuff too, where you're just like, Oh, what was it? Um, I've had your experiences with like one company just really sort of affects your experiences with whatever sub brands. I think there was um, what is it? One of the uh, insurance companies that has like uh, I think it's like Progressive, but they have like this more modern like I think it's insurance. I think that's one yeah, of is their company. Yeah, and I forget who it was, but I, I think that's Allstate. Is it Allstate? Might be. I don't know. Uh, whichever one it is is frankly irrelevant to the story, but uh, <laughs> you know I. I had a friend who like, you know, we saw a commercial for that and she's like, "Ugh, I couldn't, I could never use them for, uh, for my insurance. And I was like, well, why? It's like, well, they're owned by, you know, Allstate or Progressive or yeah. whatever. And like, I had a bad experience with them. So there's no way I'd ever give them my yeah, money. Yeah. Um, and so you know what's funny about that. Yeah. Like I'm, they will go like insurance. I think, I think it's Allstate, but like they will slap like an Allstate logo underneath it. Let's yeah. say it's like, Oh, it's an Allstate yeah. brand. I'm sure they did research to say like, Oh, people trust Allstate. And that's why we're going to slap that next to that brand. But there's also the flip side to it. Right. Yeah. And I, I will say, I think that's one of the things that I really, uh, am curious to see how the tech landscape sort of changes and shifts, um, when it comes to like, the, that experience of like now that we have companies that are big enough that they have like sub branded experiences or sub branded companies. So you have Facebook and now you have Instagram by Facebook. Right. Um, right. You had what was what's the other one that they had? Uh, WhatsApp. I mean, WhatsApp by Facebook and like, you know, Messenger, obviously by Facebook. And so they got the the Calibra currency, all this nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like because of all the issues that people have had with Facebook in the past in terms of data privacy and in terms of like all this stuff right. with the election, there's a lot of just really built-in uh, distrust of the brand and of those platforms. And that it's like you already had high engagement on them, but now that you've like put Facebook's names into it, I think people are kind of like... I don't know if I really want to keep doing anything on this right. or like what, you know, what's my, what's my like involvement with this platform going to be going forward. People are really analyzing that kind of stuff. Yeah. That makes sense. Especially after the whole like Cambridge Analytica thing, yeah. <laughs> like, Oh my yeah. data is being sold. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Cause like, I think the other, the other interesting fact with like how experiences last over time mm-hmm. is you also don't understand like how it's going to impact things that aren't even out yet. So like, let's say, Facebook's really making a move towards VR and AR now mm. with Oculus. Mm. And that market's still budding, but like who wants to use a Facebook <laughs> VR and AR platform after something like this? Mm. Or like, let's say something that you don't know the lasting impact on your business that something like that data mismanagement is going to have. Like that's not a simple sure. sweep this under the rug right. type of thing, right? Right. So and- that'll be a interesting 
there's no recovery from, it, from some of these. It's things. a hard recovery because I mean, not to harp on them too long, but it's like once you break trust like that, you have to regain trust, and they have yet to properly regain trust. Every time yeah. that people have started to like trust them again, something else comes out. And yeah. some Mark other... Zuckerberg just be popping off like left and yeah, right. Like... Oh my goodness, he just don't, like I, I don't. I, I'm really afraid to say, but that man just I don't think knows how to run a business. Like <laughs> I, I mean, there, there's different types of people do different types of things. Well, I guess, and, and so it's like I'm not going to sit here and say that like I don't know that he's not a smart person, but I don't understand at all what the hell he's trying to do with that company. <laughs> I, I don't know if he knows either. <sighs> sad but true unfortunately yeah. uh cool. i'm gonna bring it back to what you were asking earlier around like um what it means yeah. to design for like non-screen experiences so something that i was uh gonna talk about early on is kind of like all right what are what are the different types of design and what are we even really talking about right mm-hmm. so like from a high level when i look at ux like when we talked about the term product design a few times like those are one and the same and you see like all these different types of design come out like normally when people had said the word product design in the past, it meant a physical product. Right. And then when you said UX, it was like a software type designer. And in reality, that's not, that's not true. So like you'll see a lot of people, even in the UX field have backgrounds in other types of design, right? You know, like industrial design and, and things like that, because they, they are the same process. You start with users, you, build for their needs and you create a product out of it mm-hmm. and that's why those are one and the same because they're the exact same process and the thinking and like this whole notion of design thinking is not new people no. have been doing it to build physical products forever exactly and we're just now adapting it to digital products and aligning it to an agile sprint methodology it's like <laughs> that's that's the same concept so like it's not even that hard to think about UX outside of a, a screen because mm-hmm. if you just drop the label UX for a second, yeah, look around you, you have a table, you have a chair, I have some speakers in front of me, you have a laptop. Right. Those are all experiences designed by someone yes. as physical products with a different title, right? For real. So all that to say, <laughs> you can think of those people as UX designers, but you can also think of yourself as someone that if you are a UX designer or even a UI or visual designer, any right. of these types of design, if you're able to kind of go through this design thinking process and develop products that are, and you're not just like churning on UIs, you could take your same skill set and apply it to a physical product mm. easily. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. And it'd be the exact same, uh, exact same workflow. You'd start with some research, you'd do some prototyping, it could be paper prototyping, it could be any types of things. Play models, and I don't know. What, play models, whatever. And yeah. you go through and you get higher fidelities until you get the, the real materials and you and you make the final product. It's, and it's the same exact process. Absolutely. It's like the same thing that happens when uh, I remember years ago watching how they like developed the Xbox 360s like yeah. design and like in particular the controllers. And it was like, there's like, you get like 50 different controllers that sit in front of you and you're like picking at each and every one of them, trying to dissect right. each and every, you know, everything about it from every angle. Um, and then you're like, you know, do we want to have this button glow or is it just a normal, you know, button? Because if we make it the glowing button is an extra, five cents, but that you know right. translates to 
I don't know, two million dollars once you upscale right, exactly. for like however many controllers they need. So, it's, but if it, there's an issue with affordance and no one knows to push that button, you're gonna make it glowing. Exactly. Like the middle of the freaking Xbox One, you didn't know it was a button when you first got it, so no. they all glow. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know that was uh, that's always one of those things that has to be considered that I think needs to be considered, but is also like sort of the great thing about UX is that ability to sort of like translate between different industries, different fields, different projects, products, whatever. I think, right. I think if you're, you know, a good enough UX designer, you, there's, I don't want to say it's terribly complicated, but you know, you should or say it's terribly easy, but I do think that you can make that jump from, you know, one to the other. Yeah, it translates easily. And I, I can talk a bit to that because I've got experience in designing things on both sides. And I was mm-hmm. going to say the one thing, if you're really like a UX designer or a UI designer or anyone that's in a digital design right yeah. now and you want to have that translatable skill set, mm-hmm. the best thing you can do is in your next project, paper prototype. Mm-hmm. Paper prototyping is what will step you closer to traditional product, product and, design. Yeah, and hardware type design because like you're actually physically prototyping and considering those kind of constraints and there's a whole bunch of different exercises you can do at that level in the early discovery phase mm-hmm. to like really refine your design before you ever touch a screen mm-hmm. so like one of the things like i'm not a designer that likes to get into tools right i will stay on paper until it's like as far as possible, unless my stakeholders really can't understand. Right. That's the only time I'm really jumping into a tool. Right. Like I'll spend 85% of the design process on low fidelity, just sketching and, and doing stuff like that. Yeah. And I might use a tool to animate stuff and show interactions, or I just do it in paper again. But like yeah. most of your design ideas are coming out like that. And then you're all you're doing as a digital designer, when you're going from paper to the screen mm-hmm. is essentially the same as when a, a physical product designer is picking materials and then finalizing it. Yeah. It's the same idea. It's like if you really use your tools more for finalizing. So like if I was a physical product designer, mm-hmm. maybe my wireframes as a digital designer map to like architecture's drawings or architecture sketches or a CAD model. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then when I'm going to the final product and I'm doing the visual design and polish and like about to mm-hmm. hand off, that's the same as the last prototype prior to production. You know, right. so like right. it's very, very similar. And then there's a whole engineering a piece that each that gets handed to on each side and then they build the product and, and ship it yeah. right and so it's and the research is very similar uh all that's pretty similar so like the the thing i was going to mention was my very very first design project mm-hmm. so you were in my class at this point but like okay. the very very des- first design project i ever had um in school we we were told and this was the only class I would say that we got in school that was helpful for as a design. Career. I think I but know what class you're talking about, but keep going. The prompt was essentially take a non-social or non-collaborative experience and make mm-hmm. it social or collaborative. Yeah. And I was like, what? Like when we first got it, I was like, I, I remember this that is prompt. awkward. Do you remember what you did for that project? I actually don't so i remember this because i was so shocked i I was like all right i don't have anything good and i came up with like several ideas but i, don't, I thought they were all they were all like digital with some like added something or or one other thing mm-hmm. but my the end of my project i just brainstormed for a while and i came up with one i thought was stupid but um i was like i'm just gonna run with it so my project was called the very heavy door and my entire <laughs> idea was to like put weights or like make a large door 
I remember and this. make it super heavy. Yeah, you probably do because it was silly as hell. But like, it, it was, was like, hey, you gotta have like three to four people to open this. So like, if you... I actually just remember what mine was too. What but was keep going. Yeah. Mine was the alarm clock. A, uh, a, a cooperative alarm it clock. It was a Tetris alarm clock. You had to play a game of Tetris against somebody to get your alarm shut off. That's terrible. That's a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say it was a good one. It was. I'm pretty sure that was the one that we picked. But the very heavy door was not a great idea either. But it did drive social cohesion. So it was like, hey, if you need multiple people to exit a building, you're going to be forced into social conversation and stuff like that. That was my entire thing, and I I ended up getting like an A on this project because it forced a whole bunch of different interaction models like all at once so we had to explain like how it was going to make like the first person that engaged with it's going to have a different experience than the last person and all these different things and you're going to have to make a group and a team dynamics going to have to form around it but the entire point was not around the execution and this is where i think you miss i missed the point there and i think a lot of people miss the point is even in traditional design and traditional digital design is so often you're trying to make something like beautiful for your portfolio or something, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. make all this UI. I'm going to mm-hmm. do all these things. The point is not this, how the execution of the solution is. It's the experience. Right. So like right. in this, I thought this was stupid because I was like, oh, this is just a heavy door. Like an execution of that doesn't seem that amazing, right? Yeah. But the interactions in it is what made it uh, a lasting experience, right? So like that's what was interesting right. there is like, oh, now you've got this team dynamic where and I, I made the door to where you like somebody had to mess with like one part of it while they so it was almost like a puzzle, like problem solving mm-hmm. together. And then mm-hmm. you form bonding and social communication, things like that. And I'm like, that is what you were graded on is like, hey, how do you build this experience between mm-hmm. people, not the door mm-hmm. itself? And I think right. like people get so Focus too lost. much on the product. Yeah, they get so lost in the product's execution that they don't understand do. what the product meaning is. And like right. how it actually impacts the person using it. And I think mm. if you go back practically, so I just mentioned a paper prototyping as one way to get closer. <laughs> but the other one you mentioned earlier too, is like, if you really want to be closer to designing experiences, you need to really focus on user journeys and scenarios. Yes. Um, so when I used to work at a company about five, six years ago, they were very good at this and we had to optimize and this might lead into an accessibility conversation so we can jump into that in a second but like we yeah. had to consider different user use models for every application we were designing so for instance like when we sit down today and we're like oh we have to have a persona blah blah like everybody builds persona but they don't know why um, right so at one point i built a, an application for this company that was almost like a mobile checkout you could basically be like a walmart cashier Mm -hmm. and walk Mm -hmm. around and check people out right okay and so that makes very um specific constraints like oh this person is a cashier they're going to walk around with the phone right someone who's knowledgeable about the store the system that kind of stuff but then there was other constraints where it's like oh this is a consumer product this person and i remember having conversations about this exact thing this is not made up but it was like oh if this is a consumer (laughs) this is a consumer email uh, or a consumer calendar um, we were building a calendaring type app. Oh, this is a consumer mm-hmm. product. Oh, this person might literally be in the bathroom um, using the restroom, using this with one hand. And you had to consider stuff like that. Um, so I was, mm. for that product, we were saying, okay, now we know that it was something for like employees to trade shifts with and stuff. And they're like, hey, employees uh, at these companies yeah. don't um, have a lot of time. And they'll literally be <laughs> using these in the midst of their breaks or like in these little one-offs. And it was like, a large amount of the time, there was observations that showed that the employees were using their phones in the restroom. So you had to consider, like, what's one hand use on, in the, on the toilet look like? 
Like <laughs> those are things that you have to consider. And that's even though it's not sexy and you wouldn't put it on the journey normally, yeah. it, that was literally part of the journey. And so I'm like, if you really sit down and say, how does this person poop journey actually? <laughs> how does this person actually use this? And quit trying to make like these fantasy cases for your portfolio. You right. also start getting a lot closer to to design. If you really think about that, like as much as we kind of glorifies and or sorry, glorify and glamorize software design sometimes trying to make these beautiful interfaces yeah, yeah think yeah. about some of the the most meaningful products that exist like a toothbrush like Yo. it's not the sexiest experience but I, it's ergonomic it I does it, it what does i what need it, does, it to right? do and like it does it well it does it in a way that works right. for me and how i need and i'm like a lot of the time <laughs> we're designing the toothbrush of mobile apps or the toothbrush of digital software and you're over here trying mm. to make it look like a skyscraper yeah and i'm like that's not you're just missing the boat there and i'm like that's what that's really what i'm getting at but no yeah i would much rather that you know someone that we design a product that may not look the sexiest in the world but that is the most useful for our users yeah possible and the point i was making too is like sometimes the sexiness of your product actually detracts from its usefulness so like, yes. there's a whole saying, everybody probably knows us already listening to this podcast, but form follows mm. function, right? Yes. And I'm like, yes. that, that is a real thing because if you design like a super sexy looking toothbrush, you mm. might actually be saying that it's not as uh, functional as the other one that's not so sexy exactly. in its design. We're like, and no one's going to buy that no toothbrush because <laughs> they're going to have stank left. Right, <laughs> exactly. I was just like, that's not the one I'm trying to get. There's different products where like visual design or the form itself is part of the cell, right? Mm -hmm. but I'm like, not yeah. everything is, right? It doesn't have to be the sexiest. Like, I, I remember one of the, like, what was it? It, it, I, it wasn't a true story, but it was, there was a one that I'd heard forever ago about like during the, um, process of like the space race that there was like there were like a million dollars poured you know poured in by nasa in research and development and trying to like find out how to make a pen that'll write in zero gravity and then like the russians beat them by just giving them pencils like, <laughs> right exactly and <laughs> so it's like it, it's very much just to say uh, just to say that you know you don't need to worry about like all this sexy stuff you don't need to worry about all this like make sure it works make right. sure it does what it needs to and make sure it provides the kind of experience that you want your customers to have that you want your users to have first all the design parts come on top of that solve the problem first. the visual design parts yeah. i used to say this all the time like fall in love with the problem not the technology and yes. for designers it's fall in love with the problem not the design or not the solution you know because like the problem you're solving the problem first you can iterate on top of it one of the things that i always teach like even at work day to day is like people are always trying to come up with new patterns like oh i need to make a design system like that's the new thing like i'm going to make a design system most there these systems work it's like if if you can use the base patterns my entire thing is use all the base patterns use the base patterns and then if you want to find ways to improve on top of the base patterns do that but test that and test those specific things and when you test that your pattern is better than that one now you can add it that, there you go that's how now you can still say hey i've solved the problem we know that the, the base patterns have solved the problem now right. i can also show that i can add a delighter on top of the problem and it still works now you're okay exactly. now you can that's how you start increasing the that's fidelity how you build out a system yeah and now you can build a system of delighters on top of a system that actually had a structure in place
Exactly. Because if you're out here trying to just like, you know, build Rome in a day, it, it's not going to happen. You know, uh, it's think? like I got exactly. I got some contractors that can help me build. <laughs> it's like building new stuff is not the issue. It's building no. stuff that works. Right, That's right. the problem that you need to solve. The other thing so, about that is like yeah. people have so frequently tried to mix art up with design where it's like the whole oh, point of goodness. design is design has constraints. So like you should be using right. systems and should be acknowledging constraints, not just I see a lot of the time designers are like, oh, I want to have a blue uh, blue skies and green fields. I'm like, that's literally not designed anymore. Like, go get you a canvas, go <laughs> go put that easel up, and you can paint else. whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. But that's not designed. Like, we're trying to design within boundaries, and like the boundaries are the beauty of it. Is like when you have so many boundaries around you, and you're still able to make a solution to a problem. Mm-hmm. That is what's elegant about design a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. Yeah. I'd like to sort of make a metaphor about like a home or something like that and trying to like uh, remodel or redesign a home because I've been doing lots of that kind of stuff right (laughs) now but uh, you know it's really easy to like want to tear down a place and build something new but it's actually just so much better when you can look at a place and say there's there's room to be you know there's room for improvement right. there's things that can be done here that make this a much more livable usable space that make this the kind of place that you want to be in and the same is obviously true of you know user experience and digital experiences where it's i think we we talked a little bit about it uh, in our last episode where with like craigslist you know everybody wants to redesign craigslist right. all the time but um why like you don't need to it's like it works it works and it's worked for like 20 years the point you're making about like being able to look at a place or look at a website or look at something and acknowledge its its positives takes a mature design eye like you can't just walk into a house and know like oh this can be fixed unless you have an idea of how it works same with like the design you can't just walk in and well, this is why you have that, like, I'm going to redesign Facebook or I'm going to re- redesign Craigslist a lot with yes. more junior de- designers. They can't right. look at a design and understand what works and what doesn't work. And normally that's take fine. On the world. That, right? That's normally fine if you can go out and look at research or look at some data to help you understand what works and doesn't work. Like so much right. of the time, people are trying to inject their own personal biases into the design and they lose the user altogether. Yes. It's like yes. that user even if you think you are a Facebook user or a Craigslist user, you're not whenever you're one type, like that's right. designed for hundreds of different types of people. And I'm like, your, your personal bias is not going to be the thing that changes this entire platform. That platform has how many billions of users on it? Yo, like that's, that's unprecedented <laughs> scope. That's not, you, you are not the only use case for that. Right, like right. one person is not going to be the only use case for that. So you know, say all that just to say there's a lot more to it than I think what people think goes into it um, in an experience. And so it's partly on, um, I think you sort of alluded, you said something about this earlier about like what goes into the build and like understanding how stuff works. Um, and so I think even if you don't have a technical background or, you know, aren't a developer, it's fine, but you do, it always helps to have an understanding of the technology and how it works. And like being very uh, proficient in sort of like understanding 
where you have the ability to do some things and what you can get away with is always going to help. Yeah. And I would map that back to what we were saying earlier about like traditional product designer, like designing hardware. Like mm-hmm. if you're a designer that designs physical products, you know that the materials you choose and how the build gets executed, the build quality itself is going to affect mm-hmm. the products, the design, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a digital designer, why do you think it's okay not to understand how the technology works? Thank That's you. literally the same. It's like you can't yeah. sit there and, and be completely divorced from the technology and be like, oh, well, that's not the experience I design. Like, no, that, that piece when you hand off to dev is actually probably the most critical piece where you need to be involved and be understanding what's going on and start tweaking and helping because that's like a, a designer of a traditional mm. product handing off some sketches and stuff and saying, oh, you guys pick all Go the materials this. and build. Yeah, exactly. Like Johnny Ive doesn't do that when he's designing no. the next MacBook or the next right. uh, AirPods or whatever. Like that's, you're not, you're going to handcraft everything. So it yeah. has a very specific experience and feel to it. So that, all that to say, like be involved in the framework choices. Like if you know mm-hmm. that you want polished interactions design or polished animations, like you need to help them find a framework that's going to allow for that. You don't just mm-hmm. let them go, oh yeah, we're going to go build this on on a java java's not gonna allow you to do some of this that java is a back-end system but like i've seen right. people build stuff in spring which this is, is like, Ruby, a and yeah, like but i'm like oh we don't need that like yeah i've been in decisions where i've influenced technology leaders to like choose different frameworks like oh we need to build this on react so we can actually like have animations and things <laughs> um because if your if your goal is to ha- craft an experience with certain things in it the technology <laughs> is going to hamstring that if they had no idea that that's what you were trying to build Right. That's, that's the crazy part. Right. Right. Anyway, all that is interesting. And we'll probably talk about that again later on, like how technology and design work, but like, yeah, try to stick as close to the script as we can. I know. Right. I'm like that, that one's a whole topic for another day. Cause like I I have a little bit more of a technical design background. So like I am doing some technical things with the design so we can talk about that deeper too. Yeah. I'd actually really like to, um, but something that you spoke to earlier, I'm trying to remember, um, you're speaking about accessibility, but that actually that was something I wanted to get to a yeah. little bit later. It was more about um, like paper prototypes and sort of just you're in working in that space. And you said that how there's like a lot of different exercises that you can do once you have paper prototypes. Right. And so what are some of the things that you uh, are doing uh, that you find beneficial i'll speak to this from a different angle because like i went to sc- when i went to school i wanted to study game design right so i was like oh i want to make games i want to make video games yeah. and in video games um you have to you're forced to test the reason why is even when you follow all the patterns right i might follow all the patterns and make a clone of a mario game mario's mm-hmm. billions. it doesn't matter like some people won't like it they won't find it fun you have to test for fun frequently and you have to test it for it all the time so anytime you even get a mechanic down, you got to test it. And so like we would test mechanics on chalk. You'd m- test it on paper, whatever. And like as quickly as you can see if the mechanic is fun, even if it's not the exact execution, you test it in whatever means, right? So mm-hmm. that shaped the way that I think about UX because I'm now thinking like, okay, how do I get to those goals that I'm setting for this project faster? And so like in paper prototyping, I'm kind of using that same like game design toolkit and bringing it over. So like there's a couple of things, layers there. Number one, like really I'll talk to it like the base level paper prototyping. 
um, most of the time you don't have the ability to build out your full mechanic for a, a game because there's too many working parts. So it's right. too expensive a lot. And, and I see a lot of the time with software, you'll be like, Oh, I'll just go prototype that in framer or, or something mm -hmm. like prototype some interactions because it's so easy to do. Um, mm -hmm. but there's, there's positives and negatives to that. Sometimes I use higher fidelity prototyping like that sometimes early on to get harsher feedback around a concept if I'm testing like for a product direction. But if the product mm -hmm. direction is set and I need feedback on the concept or the goal, I'll use like a lower fidelity uh, mechanism. And that's where I would bring in stuff like paper prototyping. So why is paper prototyping powerful, right? The very mm -hmm. first thing is base level paper prototyping. You can map out almost your entire interaction design. So if you're good with paper, um, you can use base paper, use post-it notes, use post-it cards and all kinds of things to like do fluid interactions and you will mm -hmm. and the really positive with paper is if you're mm -hmm. struggling with like system design or thinking at a higher level it forces you to have to like think of everything as a widget because if you're going to test mm -hmm. you have to replace the physically replace each piece of the page with mm -hmm. those widgets or you're going to swap out new screens or whatever right so if you mm -hmm. if you're testing that way you're it's going to force you into a system design to where you're actually starting to design at a system level and you start breaking the pages right. apart, things like that. Um, the other things that, that it starts letting you do as well is it starts letting you get into a rhythm where things can be a little bit more participatory in the design process. So for instance, let's say I invite you, um, I could drop a paper interface in front of you. That's kind of like a blank canvas looks canvas. like a blank website yeah. and I, I can have all these widgets all over the place and all these different states that are all on mm -hmm. paper and I can have you construct mm -hmm. the experience. So now I can see how your mental model is mapping without me actually having too much um, influence on it. So people use mm -hmm. card sort traditionally for IA mapping, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to yeah. map um, my information architecture based on these closed groups or these open groups. This mm -hmm. is like taking that and applying it to the screen. Where it's like, oh, what would the information architecture looks like if I have these predefined widgets mm -hmm. or even some blank ones sometimes and let people sketch on them and just let them define what the experience looks like, which yeah. you're not necessarily forcing them to do that. But like right. they're they have some constraints to kind of design within. Right. So like that's that's mm -hmm. another way to look at it. The other way that I've looked at paper and maybe this isn't paper prototyping specifically, but like lower fidelity design yeah. prototyping. There was an exercise that I used to run that was kind of like, um, it was like a role play exercise to where you get with another designer or someone else that's like able to, to kind of think in this space. And one of you role plays the person, like the user using the experience. Right. And the other right. role plays the, the product that you're designing. And you have a conversation back and forth. And this is a way to identify the, the user journey or like the experience gaps. So like, for okay. instance, if we're having a discussion and I'm a user and you're Amazon.com, for instance, you can start really understanding people's intentions and like yeah. mapping customer intents is very important for most websites or mm -hmm. any sort of product. Like what, what does the customer intend to do with this product? Um, so I can yeah. come to you as a user and say, hey, I really want to buy some jeans. And then you as Amazon goes. If you look at Amazon's website, it says, well, you right. can search for jeans or here's some things that you might be interested in. Here's a board game. Here's, here's some coffee. Here's, and you say, like we saw, we saw you bought a fridge. Yeah, we six saw you bought ago. a fridge last week. You want to buy another <laughs> fridge? And like, that's how, just, that's how Amazon's interface as a discussion looks. And then right. now you say, oh, okay, I'll, I guess I'll just search for the jeans. Right. Then they'll say, right. and then you as Amazon will say, 
It's oh, like, all right, here's 2,000 jeans. And before the result, even, it's like, oh, do you want to search for jeans in automotive, in, in apparel, in baby apparel, in women's in apparel? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, all, that's all those filters that go down. And you can start even seeing just in this conversation where the experience is breaking. Did you mean Janae? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, like, you can have these back and forth discussions and then map those to an experience. And I would, I typically use that on paper and kind of made a chain of what the discussion looked like. Um, and this this kind of model actually I used this when I was doing game design again when I was trying to make like um, character narratives. It, it's something you can do in voice UI also when you're trying to do like a voice design. It's like almost around a narrative design, and you would go back and forth between this to decide a narrative, right? And when you look at experience experiences um, like this, as much as we're talking about like a website, it doesn't have to be one. Like this this kind of experience is very much how you interact with any product. And it's like, what is, right. what is the discussion between that you and that product? Um, so, yeah. I mean, at this point, yeah, people's relationship with like their phone, their technology, you know, is at almost sort of like a person to person, sort of personal level. Right. Um, so I think having that kind of conversation always helps. And I know for, for me in particular, I am someone who tries to very much like put myself as hard as I can into the shoes of my users and to understand like what's the different you know what's everything to consider about here like what do you get in different use cases yep. and so i know one of the things that kind of inspires my process was actually there's like uh there's an episode of the brooklyn 99 that i was like really stuck stuck out to me one time because uh they're trying to figure out where peralta's girlfriend amy was um and so he like basically like goes into character as amy and just like <laughs> does this whole like walkthrough of like i'm here now and like and now i'm like mad that so-and-so is closed so i i have a shameful cigarette and then immediately throw it out and i look and there's no trash can and i walk and it's here and i place it and it's this whole thing and i'm just like yeah, that's basically how I try to walk through things is by having as much as I can a good understanding of where my users are coming from. Right. Um, I think, you know, in my early days when I was at uh, a particular trash company, actually designing a trash company it, or a trash company. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I've been at all of those. <laughs> so let's let's be real about that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we were going through, we had uh, an app that we were working on for drivers. And so I, like, sat down and uh, they happen to have actually, like, full written user journeys. And so I went through and I was just like, okay, knowing that we're, like, this is an app for the, the, they had tablets inside the trucks for drivers. And so I was like, if we're using this, like, what are we trying to do? Where are we going? Like, what sort of exceptions do we need to, you know, log? What sort of, uh, how do we get through our, our route list? And then going on ride-alongs with these guys. Um, so on, you know, multiple occasions, I sat down. I woke up like stupid early in the morning. Had to drive over there to these uh, outposts where all the trash uh, trucks sit overnight. And they're just like, "All right, here's our shifts. You're with this guy, and you know, so on and so forth." And you're just riding, just trying to understand like, what the hell do you do? Right. Like, how do you actually do your job? What do you, what helps? What hurts? You know, what's something that you wish you could tell me that, you know, you'd never been able to tell corporate that, you know, they would listen to you, that sort of thing. The funny thing and, with that is like, as you're talking about it, I'm like, if I'm a trash driver or any sort of person that's focusing, my experience is driving. You are a trash driver. That's <laughs> if, I, if I'm essentially like driving, right? Why do I right. want to interact with a, a, a digital interface whatsoever? 
Like why? Exactly. Like when you're saying, oh, I need to log this, I would have done this on paper previously. And I think that's the other side yeah. that I was really getting at earlier is like so many people assume that the appropriate solution is a digital experience. It's mm. not always like mm -hmm. a, a simple thing uh, mm -hmm. for that. Like when you were talking about it, I'm like, oh, this is just basically a checklist that they need to log certain things. Right. And I was like, the there's a little more to it than that. Yeah, there's yes, a little more, like, but I'm like, essentially, that to me, I was like, this is the same as me being on a mini golf course, and I need to log my score every single right, time I right. go through the hole, right? And I'm like, there's a very, do I really need to be doing that on a on an application? And like, your business might want to invest in that because they think it's faster. Yeah. Can it be automated? Can I do it? Not at all, right? Like, there's a whole bunch right. Of I, th I think there are too many. There are more than enough times where it's like people overcomplicate stuff. Right. And I mean, I think that was like the big problem with like QR codes when they came out. <laughs> Everyone right. had a freaking QR code, but no one had phones that could read them. So <laughs> just like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? Um, but yeah, even in that particular instance of like the trash pickup, you know, it was great for them because they would try to move to this whole system of like whenever they would have, they would notice that like, not just that they had exceptions, but they would have the same sort of exceptions at the same stops, or they'd have multiple exceptions at the same stop all the time. And so it costs them money to like wait out there and you know, they can't pick stuff up and it's this whole thing. So they're just like, well, now we just are going to charge people who have routine, uh, you know, exceptions. And so they needed a system to be able to like use the camera on the back of the tablet to take a picture of it. So it would send it to them. It would tag it, you know, it when it would uh, go into the back end, it would uh, tag onto whatever the, uh, to the actual customer and then send them this like preformed email with the exception and the photo and the time and stamp and all that stuff and just email them. And like, you now owe us, you know, X amount of right. dollars. So it's just like, okay, it makes sense in a larger system like that. Right. But again, to your point, it's like if you're not even considering the fact that it's part of these larger systems, then you're going to just kind of jack everything up once you're like, well, we need to start changing all the interaction patterns because yeah. this is great and I want to make a new system. And that's another. And I'm like, chill, bro. Make that <laughs> Too much downstream impact, yeah. Or upstream impact, I guess, in that scenario. Yeah. In that sense, mm -hmm. um, you were also saying something earlier about uh, accessibility, and so I did want to talk a little bit more about that. Oh yeah, I can talk to that a little bit. So like, I've specialized in doing accessibility design for the for a while now. But like, um, back when I was working on some projects a while ago, um, I kind of got tasked with being the guy that had to design for visual impairment. Mm -hmm. So every, even though we were working on a screen at that time. Um, we were also working on audio interfaces. So we had to assume, I was designing applications for elderly users. So we were assuming mm -hmm. that in these situations, these people could either be incredibly visually impaired or be completely blind, right? And so like mm -hmm. the concept with like iOS, I was, we were doing iOS apps at the time. So it has a built-in accessibility mm -hmm. feature called voiceover, right? Right. So if you've never used it, you should try this out, um, but you should go it's through. It's interesting. Using an iPad, or an, or an iPhone or any of these devices in voiceover mode is a completely different experience than using it normally, right? So it's, it's kind of trash. It's kind of trash, but at the same time, it really does enable someone that cannot see to use the device. Oh, absolutely. And to be clear too, like these assistive, assistive tools like voiceover were not designed to help blind people. They were designed to help someone with a light impairment. So like if you had color blindness or had a, a cataract or something, you could still kind of see the screen. Right. Like that's what it's for, but it really has gone beyond and completely visually impaired people can use it. 
So for instance, yeah. we had to, and the thing that's, that's awkward about it, I still don't, I still think this has a long way to go. Um, so for instance, we had to design the experience of listening to mm-hmm. the design. So it was this mm-hmm. really awkward thing where say, for instance, we did a very simple design, right? Like a login mm-hmm. screen has two mm-hmm. input fields. The first one's taking your email. The second one's taking the password. And then there's a button that just says submit. Let's, let's just act like nothing else is on the screen, right? It's that simple. Yeah. The way that voiceover interprets that is it has to read stuff from top to bottom. And then you have to, it has to have a very specific way to read it out for the, mm-hmm. the user that's going to hear this for it to make sense. And as I talk about this, you might call out some awkward pieces and I'll speak to that in a second, but essentially the way voiceover would read it and you have to design these experiences and you have to write these experiences out as text. You would mm-hmm. have to define like, oh, it says input field text box or yeah, yeah or text box, whatever you want to call it input field, email address, right? So now yeah. think of the experience that this customer has to have, right? Just to do that. And then at the end of that, it'll say tap to input or something like double tap to input is what it actually says. So to, to interact yeah. with the screen, you tap and swipe to, to go into a field or to submit a button or something, you double tap anywhere on the screen. And then that, uh, okay. that, that's like a normal tapping on, on our screens. So you would double right. tap to input. Now a keyboard comes up. Every single input on that keyboard now gets read out. Oh, this is, this is a. Uh, letter A, double tap to type. Letter S, double tap to type. Letter D, double tap to type. And they have to. Sit, this Good. is where it gets really bad with like complete right. visual impairment. But like if you can right. see it, you can kind of type it in. You still have to double tap every single time. So let's just assume they get that in. Then they get the password in, right? Then when yes. they come down to the bottom, it goes submit button, double tap to submit, right? And if you're truly visually impaired, right, and you're not right. able to see. What does a button really it. mean? You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. it's like, okay. They, so you're, you're actually, if you, if you think about it, the very first time a visually impaired person might use your voice accessibility mode, they might mm-hmm. be learning about UI patterns to where it's like, mm-hmm. what is a button? What does that even mean? They might've heard of buttons in the past, but the word, the literal word button has multiple meanings and you may or may not know that a button is something that you press to submit something. Right. So like, right. That's why it says something like, Oh, button submit, double tap to submit essentially. Right. Right. So like there's considerations all throughout voiceover that you have to make around this customer literally cannot see these inputs and may not understand (laughs) what they are even when it's read out. Um, because okay. it's going to read out its literal UI name, which is awkward, right? That's what I think has a large, yeah. large room for just growth. like ex- explaining that, like what the component is. Yeah, literally, and... the components. <laughs> yeah, I that is. You can customize okay. it and stuff, but it also is for awkward sure. if you customize it because now it's not the same as the rest of the device, right? So, like, if the customer just went through the whole operating system, interacting with it that way. And then you want to mm-hmm. switch it up, it's going to be awkward. So very, the principle of familiarity is, is massive here. And mm-hmm. you have to, a lot of the time I see people like forget that their application or their piece of an application is one thing in the sea of everything else. And just think of the true, the true experience this customer had to get to get here. They had to interact mm-hmm. with the home screen. They had to interact with all the app icons, they interact with your app icon. They came through, mm. they might have interacted with their email if they had to confirm something, whatever, right? They would have interacted with like hundreds of elements on the screen prior to getting here. So now you want to switch right. it up. It'd be a confusing like, experience. 
Exactly. And it's that system design thinking sort of that that will get in the way. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, when you try to just do your own thing <laughs> the, too hard. I'm going to talk a little bit about this, too, because this, this is a good um, design the experience, not the screen type of thing. And also like the design for yeah. accessibility. So we were designing yeah. these products for people that were in like rural areas in Japan, honestly. Mm -hmm. And the experience was interesting because like we wanted to have an iPad so bad, like, oh, we're going to have an iPad. Um, there was a learning that came out. I'm not going to explain in detail um, about this, but there was a learning that came out of some research that elderly people in the cities that we were kind of targeting mm. actually had a, a way to show that they were okay. So this app was trying to check in and be like, oh, is this elderly person okay? But they had an analog already in their city. So this is something that you can take away whenever you're de de designing products. Is like, what is an analog that somebody's already doing, right? So a lot of the mm. most disruptive things in the world are like, there was already an analog for it, and then somebody made a digital version of it. And with no consideration to the analog. Or no, like with, with consideration to the analog, like something like Uber, right? It completely yeah. understood the analog of, the, of hailing a taxi and it made it right. better, right? But right. The, the thing that was interesting here, and we were about to not consider the analog at all, and that's what was, the right. problem was here, is like, are you really gonna get a group of elderly people to start using an iPad every day? I didn't think so. Um, but what we learned in this research was the way that these like elderly people in these rural Jap Japanese areas worked, they yeah. would go outside at the beginning of the day and there was a flagpole where they would raise a flag in their cities. And I don't know how like widespread that is or how accurate that is across, but in just within our population, that was something that they were doing. And I yeah. was like, okay, that's interesting. So my question became, why even make this app? If all we're trying to do is check if they're okay, right? And get that communicated back to some parties. Yeah. Um, what if we just put an IoT sensor on that flag? And if they interact with that, we, don't, we now don't need a second input for them to say they're okay. There's a high likelihood they might forget to do this or they just don't want to interact with this. Right. Um, and they're already used to doing this traditionally. So, okay, now you put an IoT sensor there. It triggers to everyone else, positive or negative. Um, did the flag go up or not, essentially. Right. And then you're good to go. And that, that design solved the problem and was way more elegant than us trying to make a piece of software. So, like, you, have, you could have 100 iterations of that accessibility design of whatever that screen would be, even if it was someone that wasn't visually impaired. Yeah. If they weren't going to use that application, how is that helpful? It's not, right? So like if the real problem is you need to understand that an elderly person that's alone at home is okay or not. Yeah. And you know that they aren't, like that persona is not going to be looking to use this new technology. They've never had this before. Yeah, we're trying to inject these iPads in. Right, uh, right. It's trying to, yeah, when you're trying to put something in the, in the process that doesn't, doesn't really need there, to be there. Right, and it's like no, no different than like, oh, if, if we learn that every single one of them use telephones like traditional landlines it would have been better right. experience for us to figure out how to hook that traditional landline to our application for the other side of it you know but like right. each this was a three different persona like user groups connecting into one <laughs> right but i'm like <laughs> you don't disrupt a journey for the sake of your product like right. if that journey is already existing like you can do that but there once again 
start with the base platform, test <laughs> it. And if the test prevails, then you go with it. But like in this situation, we were just building a UI for the sake of the UI. And this is how you make products that don't succeed. That get no traction. <laughs> exactly. It's like you go out. And so like when even, even in that scenario where we were kind of looking to design something for a screen and it, you cut it back to something that's not for the screen, yeah. kind of the point I was going to make about this entire thing is no design is really for the screen. No design. Every single design is for people and you can inter intercept people in any medium. And so like the thing that I think we lose a lot as designers, I think we, when we were in school, we had to read the Marshall McLuhan book, like, he, and yeah. he's all like, oh, medium is the message, right? The medium. Even yeah. the way that you choose to interface with the customer says something about that experience and about that brand. So like if you interface yeah. with the customer through a digital platform, um, that says something, especially if that customer is already a digital native or the opposite, like these elderly people, I'm not digital. If you're, if you're trying to inject a digital product into that elderly person's workflow that doesn't care about digital, you now immediately are ho a hostile brand to them. Yes. You're like, you don't even understand me at that yes. point. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, you when, when you can get into someone's life in a way that more naturally uh moves along their journey yeah, yeah. i think you're always going to find better inroads and in trying to force yourself into sounds like a life. marriage podcast it really does <laughs> like, what, is, what is your marriage like it's like you can't force yourself into their journey let's look at the relationship happiness meter <laughs> you filled your love tank today that's essentially <laughs> but, i mean put that's one, essentially gotta, what it is like, you gotta put one in the tank bank guys <laughs> i mean that's you're building relationships. And I think that's the thing that's so interesting here is like you're building a relationship on behalf of a company or on behalf of a product or something. But like yeah. everyone has products that they're fond of and they have relationships with. And that's really what this comes down to. And if you want yeah. to inject in, in I, you have to come in the right way, right? Yeah. You, I mean, but you best step correct. Step unless you get smacked. <laughs> but, you know, at, at the same time, it's like, I had a point and it kind of vaguely just escaped me, but <laughs> essentially to say that it's like, I think you better the check problem before you wreck yourself. Well, I mean, lest you wreck yourself. <laughs> um, no, basically, I think the thing that I've always found to just be the best tool, the best asset to someone who wants to be a good UX designer is empathy. You have to be able to empathize with your uh, users, with your customers, because at this point in 2020, people are inundated with notifications. They're right. inundated with things that are trying to get them to subscribe to something that are trying to get money from them some way, somehow that are trying to inject themselves into someone's life in a way that usually doesn't really add a lot of value. Right. So you <laughs> have to make sure that whatever you are doing is going to be of value to right. someone. It's not, not going to be cool. It's not going to be nifty. It's not going to be something that they just pick up for a week and then put down. It has to inject value into Unless their lives. that is your value, right? Certain things, that is their yeah. value. Like fidget spinners were around because that was the value. It's cool and nifty for a little bit. But I'm like, that's it's interesting because like I'm designing a card game right now. So this is another thing that's like completely using the same exact UX thinking outside right. of the screen. As a card, right. and then I've been struggling with something like, "Oh, what's the value proposition for this?" Because I'm so used to being like, 
oh, there's a business value, a customer value, blah, blah. You're going to have these like mm -hmm. high level goals. And like sometimes the value is literally just to have fun or to be, yeah. or to be interesting or be cool or be or like drive a different For sure. thinking, you know, it's like For we've sure. aligned on some goals there and like, really it's the same process. It's, Hey, we mm -hmm. got to design some paper prototypes. We got to test, we got to refine, we got to update, we got to make guardrails around these things. Right. So like the interesting part about like making a card game is we're, we're in this awkward it's kind of like partially digital and partially physical because we're doing all the original design up front, like digitally, mm -hmm. but there's a, there's a time and place where it just, you can't make changes. Right. Like right. it goes out. And I think it's interesting. Cause like the, the game development process, I, I mentioned this before, like the game design process, if you're, it was, it's kind of a known in the game design industry. If you're going to get to something that's fun, you have to test a ton. Cause you just don't yeah. know what's fun and every little change tweaks the entire balance. Experience. Yeah. So like right now, like I changed one, I have a game right now that has like 20 mechanics in it and they're all balanced together. Right. And I changed, there's 200 cards in the game that we're building and mm. you don't see all of them every game. You probably see like between 40 and 50 of them in a game. But over the past, like we've done seven play tests and play test six, there was a card I thought was overpowered. So I changed mm -hmm. its power in play test seven. It was so weak. The entire deck collapsed. Like it, you couldn't even win with the deck. And I was like, that card was so pivotal that, and it didn't seem like it was going to be that pivotal, like, but it was, and you couldn't do right. anything. And so right. if you take that same mindset into design, right. And you're thinking of it from a, from your digital experience, like there's things within your game or within your um, website or your application you're building. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are a connected system. There's pillars that these things stand on. If you change mechanics within your, your overarching design, it could affect the entirety of the experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so interesting. You kind of mentioned it earlier about like the kiosk that you went to. There was one little piece that was mm -hmm. off and it affected the entire mechanism of your brand experience with that one company yeah, you know exactly. so i'm like that it's it's interesting because you can have ripple effects across so many pieces of your entire design so it's funny because like i'm mentioning the card game because as much as that deck didn't work <laughs> it actually made another <laughs> deck stronger that okay. isn't supposed to be that strong so like right. it broke the balance of the entire game for all four players when i changed one card wow. in one deck so like that's that's what's so interesting about design uh if you bring that over you could you can have that kind of impact where it's it's really important um when you're working in larger companies because like for instance we mm -hmm. mentioned it a bit earlier around like oh we're the checkout team we don't need to mention data right. privacy oh but now people aren't using their voice uh assistance or whatever right right that's the reality like you have to consider journeys outside of your specific piece of the product and that's really what we've been talking about this whole time is like mm -hmm. it's not just about your product and the other thing you have to consider and this one like is a is a lot harder for people to understand is what mm -hmm. are other products that people are using in conjunction with yours and sometimes they're mm -hmm. competitors sometimes they're analogous sometimes they're complementary applications but mm -hmm. if you understand like oh i'm building a fitness app and i'm i'm targeting iphone users like they're probably going to use I apple health like how do I integrate right. with that? What does it look like? When do right. they hit Apple Health? When do they hit us? 
what parts do we need to build? What parts are there? Right. It's the same way where you have, um, like, what was it with the some of the COVID-19 tracker stuff that was coming out where it was like, I saw that like there had been there had been some conspiracy stuff out there about like, oh, they put this tracker app on your phone right. to like, you know, track what you're doing. And it's like, no, they're laying down a framework for people to utilize for people who want to use like contact tracing apps. It's a totally different. It's a totally right. different thing. And so they have these things in place. So that way people can build on top of it and go forth and you know multiply. prosper that way. <laughs> go forth right. and multiply. Now that makes sense. Cause I'm like the, mm -hmm. that, the thing that's so interesting about um, experience design is like, or really any of these technical designs is it, it is very similar to any other type of architecture. It's like, there's there's tons of pieces to it. There's building blocks mm -hmm. all over the place. And you're mentioning this one is like, oh, that's just a building block. That's like a, something that people can turn into a bigger experience. Absolutely. But it's not really an experience in and of itself. You know, I'm like, that's right. And some products are that like you might build a product. That's just a framework that other people mm. can build on top of. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting indeed. Well, I think we've been at it for a minute and I'm sure uh, <laughs> the listeners probably could use a, a break. It's been a while. It's been a Did while. Did we even cover what we said we were going to cover? I mean, we were talking about what UX is outside of a screen. Let's recap that really fast, I guess. Yeah. The real question is, what can you learn as a digital designer to from user experiences outside of a screen? And what can you take yes. back, right? So what do you think? Yes. So I would say that the biggest things to always keep in mind is and I'm always going to harp on it is just it's empathy for your user um, understanding where they are in their journey um, understanding what it is that they come to that they were doing before they come to whatever your experiences that you want them to to have and then what it is that you want them to have walk away from mm -hmm. That experience with because know that when they have contact with whatever you are designing that that is then going to just is going to leave some sort of impact or maybe no impact <laughs> right. at all which is really not good either <laughs> um, it's a give and take so it, it is and it's it's really like you sort of only have one chance to make a first impression so make it a good one make it a lasting one so oftentimes people don't remember you know names um certain details you know stuff like that but they always remember the feeling they had with something they always remember the feeling they had with something um so just know that uh there's that part of it um, you have to understand where they're coming from in their journey um and also i would really say understanding the multiple components that fit into the larger experience outside of just yourself uh for quick example, on in my uh, past, I had a calendar site I was designing for Amazon, and someone wanted after every it was the holiday shipping cutoff calendar, um, and like after everyone, they wanted a Prime upsell, <laughs> and it was like there were like for seven dates on the calendar, <laughs> right, 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 and so it's like. Don't you think that by the seventh, like <laughs> someone's going to decide whether or not they want Prime already? Yeah. Not to mention the fact that we had, when you go through the actual buying pipeline, 
there's at least like three or four other prime upsells the entire journey. The funny so point like, there, but real quick, yeah. is like I say this all the time. And we can deeply talk about this maybe next week or the week after. But like, there's this entire thought that I design with, and I don't know. There's other designers that use it, but it's not very common. But like this concept of like an explicit action versus an implicit action. Yeah. When you've ignored the prime upsell on three pages previous, or even one page yeah. previous. Yeah. There's like a philosophy, don't show it again because I've implicitly said I don't care, right? Exactly, exactly. So yeah, that that was really the ultimate point here. It's like, you know, understand, you know, where your users are coming from, what their journey is, and then also what's going to go in conjunction with your, uh, your experience, your device, your app, whatever, um, that's going to affect that as well because there's always going to be like more than one screen that someone interacts with before yours. Uh, there's something else that they're going to be dealing with besides your thing. So you better make sure that you are ready, prepared, and able to work with that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I would say maybe from the practical side, like how can, what are some tools you can use to get there? Like I mentioned before, like around paper prototyping and things like that. But mm-hmm. I think from a high level, um, in order to really understand how to design this experience, similar to what you're saying, Kalen, when you're doing things like user journeys or scenario mapping or, or flow mapping, mm-hmm. map everything that happens before and after your experience mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with your specific product. For instance, like, mm-hmm. hey, if this is a persona of a busy mom um, and she's going to take her son to, t- to soccer practice in this scenario, I just had an idea for something. I'm working on it at work. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's like maybe design that part of the scenario. She drove up to the, the field. She dropped the, her son off. She had 10 minutes before she was going to go drive off and get food. She uses your application in those 10 minutes. Then it, it raises the stakes of what you have to consider. It starts saying, hey, she's already higher stress. She has a limited mm-hmm. amount of time. Mm-hmm. You don't have time in that experience to be showing a whole bunch of things being verbose, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now you have to reconsider that exact experience, right? So definitely force yourself into that. And I would honestly say, like, if you really want to get good at these kind of things, look into things like filmmaking, like storyboarding or, or yeah. screenwriting for films is helpful. And that's and same with games. Like, that's where the game design background comes in. You had to do that kind of same stuff for games. Like, crafting narratives, understanding scenarios. And, and the real thing I would mention is, like, there's a the real concept real. called like <laughs> there's like a concept called beat charting uh look at mm. look at that concept like around a beat chart and try to map your experience out as story beats and start really understanding like hey where does it fit in this person's life and then inside of that little microcosm of that per- person's life design in there and that's where you can uh, do all those things like paper prototyping and testing and, and going from there but it's really going to be more about the high level story arc and understanding where your product even fits. And if you do that effectively, there's going to be times where you will understand that your product doesn't even need to exist or it needs to exist in a different way. There you or go. you need to move it from the story beat that is currently in or the, the part of the story that is in somewhere else. And then you have to find creative ways to do that. I hear you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Sorry, I had to jot down this uh, right, idea. No, so like, <laughs> man, look, you out here dropping uh, truth bombs. <laughs> we got to write down like Confucius. Okay. I know, right? That's, I mean, that that's good that you're able to be inspired while we're writing or talking about look, it. That means it's I, effective. I mean, I'm just saying that as long as, you know, we're doing this, it's for as much of like our benefit as I would hope it would be for whoever's <laughs> listening here. And so, you know, I'm 
I'm doing this for me too. <laughs> I think the cool thing too is like we mentioned a bunch of things here, like a bunch of different techniques, a bunch of different like yeah. ideas. And so like if you guys are interested in any of those things or want to hear more on a specific topic, let us know. We'll deep dive into yeah. like tools or concepts or anything like that. And we can explain it in more detail. We try to keep a high level for this discussion. Right, right. And just keep it moving for right now. But uh, I think once we start really getting into a little bit more flow with these things, we're going to try and really make sure we have some great quality content for y'all. Uh, some little flavor for you. <laughs> and uh, we'll keep yeah. it moving for sure. I'm like, yeah, I think we'll probably get more into like the theory of UX and how to execute on those things and stuff in the future. Yeah. So a little more interesting as well. Cool. I like it. Sounds good. Dope. I didn't make as many hip hop references today <laughs> you know it was less puntastic <laughs> than i would normally like especially for father's day oh yeah which, by the yeah. way happy father's yeah, day thanks i completely yeah. forgot it was father's day again <laughs> you uh you're the dad that's so why i, I forgot he... oh, okay not, there you, you don't go. have to remember whenever you are the dad <laughs> you have to remember mother's day <laughs> that's that's true that's yeah, true exactly oh man it's funny All cool right. Well, thank you all for listening. And uh, until again, this is your boy, Caleb Moorhead. Yep, this is Cameron Luck, and we'll see you next time. Be chill. We out of here.